listening to the Legendary Wrestling Obsession Podcast with your hosts, Corey Draper and Jeff Hughes. What a bastard! Didn't know what happened to him there. My word, Anderson can't believe that he's beside himself with anger. And Tully Blanchard is beside himself almost unconscious. Good down-home cheating. Good down-home good down cheating. Sure. All-Star Wrestling is sanctioned by the AWA, the American Wrestling Association. All-Star Wrestling presents the top professional wrestlers from the United States, Canada, England, Germany, Australia, Mexico, Poland, Japan, the greatest professional wrestlers from throughout the world. And now to the ring for all-star action. Fans with great all-star wrestling action. Welcome back. The week three episode for the podcast. We're going down a different road today. Those who have been listening have been listening to episodes one and two of Saturday's event. But today we wanted to just take a brief detour to really touch base and set the table for what was our wrestling childhood. And that was watching the AWA, Vern Gagne's all-star wrestling here in Winnipeg. As part of that territory, that's all we knew. What was your experience? What was your first days of watching AWA wrestling, Jeff? I couldn't exactly say how it happened. I know that Baron Von Raschke was already a face. And if you look at his character, I'm pretty sure he was a bad guy at some point. A goose-stepping, you know, (laughs) German accent. That seems to indicate that maybe he had done a change of attitude somewhere that when I wasn't watching... Definitely had been a heel earlier in his career, yeah. You can just tell. So that would probably help to pinpoint when I became aware of the whole thing. Um, So without going to the internet, I'm not too sure. But uh, not... You have told me that you were watching it way sooner than I was. So I've only seen... I've typed into the internet, 70s AWA, and I watched a clip of Bobby... Heenan saying, I'm not going to be gorgeous Bobby Heenan. No more beautiful Bobby Heenan. I'm now Bobby the Brain. So he was, you know, yeah. what was it, gorgeous or beautiful Bobby? Uh, pretty, uh, pretty boy Bobby Heenan. Yeah, I right. think he had a couple of titles. And as a wrestler, he was sort of going under that. And that was, I think the switch to the brain was sort of around the time where he was going to start focusing more on being a manager than just than being a wrestler. Uh, so and, I didn't see that real time. I yeah. reviewed that. So I came in around the time where... The high flyers were established. They weren't. They were the kind of the face of the company, right? And that makes sense because the son of the boss was on the high flyers, and he was the kind of the guy that nobody looked like a wrestler back then. <laughs> <laughs> but especially Greg Gagne, yeah, he was a bit of a beanpole. But I gotta, you know, give him credit. All kinds of props, really. Even if he didn't look like the Ultimate Warrior or Rick Rude, he was incredibly exciting in the ring. I mean, watching it as, um, let's say, 10 years old, I may have started watching AWA. And the most exciting part was definitely watching Greg Gagne with his tag team partner, Jumpin' Jim Brunzel, wrestling other established bad guys, proper heels, not jobbers. And when the TV show flipped over to those clips of the Winnipeg Arena or 
somewhere else on their circuit with, you know, 9,000 people screaming and cheering instead of, say, 50 people in a studio audience. That's what we got. 90%, 95% of what we watched right. were jobber squash matches and interviews with Mean Gene Okerlund. Everybody knows who he is. Yes. But we knew first... <laughs> I would That's argue, right. you know, I mean, first of the, what, I don't know. Heavy that, exposure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were a dozen or so territories with TV I mean, shows. Probably even more, but yeah. There was definitely a lot of different people sort of wearing that mean gene hat in different territories. Right. But he became the most famous for doing it because he got to be a part of that, you know, Hogan rocket ship ride all through the WWF and, yeah. and, and his time in the AEWA you know, he, I, came, he came I, out of radio. He was hired. He was a radio personality. And oh. they, yeah, that's, that's sort of how they, they got him into wrestling. And hmm. he was just the perfect fit for the time in the 70s and also in, in the 80s. And I mean, Gene went on to you know, almost become a bit of a joke of himself by the, you know, getting to the 90s and he's doing the hotline stuff or whatever. And he's not, you know, it's not quite there. He's not quite, he doesn't quite have the same kind of, in WCW especially, he didn't quite have the same personality, let's hmm. say, or it didn't come off as well. But, you know, growing up, he was just, he was... Every, wrestling was him. It was him holding that microphone. I probably can remember a lot more about interviews from that those eras than I can matches. Right. Well, in the AWA, Vern Ganya stuck around a little too long. <laughs> Far too long. Yeah. He was the champion granddad. You know, like the big <laughs> in, poached fish, white belly, bald head. And uh, the guy, of course, is a legend and all hail to his accomplishments, but he stretched the credibility of it all when he booked himself as champion and he was not looking athletic or fit and uh, he would make returns as well. So when I came into it, I believe Nick Bockwinkel was champion. Definitely. And in my memory, Greg Gagne would also wrestle Nick Bockwinkel. Oh, sure. So Greg Gagne was kind of like the number one babyface to me when I came in because he was part of the High Flyers. And I think I saw him have sleeper battles with, with Nick Bockwinkle. They were trading. Like when, when I got to see some of that magic stuff, if I'm not mistaken, did I ever get to see Bockwinkle? In? Okay, well, you just said that. I'm I... sure. You know, like, again, the format of the AWA All-Star Wrestling show that we watched didn't really ever say, like, hey, this week it's going to be, you know, this big match. It was more about like, hey, this is these are the matches coming up. This is the tickets we're trying to get you to buy in your town. Your best bet is that they might show you a clip from an exciting moment like you referenced from an actual arena with a big crowd. And then you would get the clip, usually only in the purpose of promoting the next storyline or the continuation of that storyline. Not so much like the payoff. If that makes sense. So to help establish, the AWA was doing a monthly show here in Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. At the Winnipeg Arena. And they were selling, what, 10,000 tickets or a you know, lot anyway. We'll, we'll get some numbers and bring that up in the second half of the show. I do know that they, you know, from speaking to someone who was heavily involved in local wrestling and, and wrestled a bit, you know, under the Tony Candelo banner and stuff like that, and just a big fan of AWA, that they, they were pulling in good crowds. Definitely several, you know, they were... Their monthly show was big, and I'm not saying they were hitting 10,000 every time, but they certainly weren't wrestling in front of like a thousand people or something, you know. So I'm sure if we went and ran the numbers, they probably were averaging like over eight or nine thousand, you know, in Winnipeg. It was one of their best locations, you know. They were across the Midwest. They were one of the biggest promotions at the time in the territory business. They really stretched a huge area, you know, Wisconsin, Chicago, Minneapolis. Winnipeg was a big part of that. 
and uh, you know eventually they got into San Francisco and Vegas and stuff like that and that in Denver and those outreaches didn't necessarily do that well for them and the you know the story of the fall of the AWA is you know fairly well known and not what we're here to talk about today because we just want to relive our childhood and, and those memories of like when when they were strong but the AWA became such a strong territory because they were able to attract some of the best wrestlers because they had one of the best schedules. So they generally didn't wrestle as many shows as some of the other territories. And Vern, although he's apparently quite famous for being pretty miserly with his money, was making so much money off of these big venues that he was doing really well in, like Minneapolis and Chicago and Winnipeg and stuff like that, that wrestlers could make more money and had like wrestle less for more, for you know the same or more money right so and and then basically they pretty much took the summer off which mm. was a crazy business model um, but they wow. really didn't, weren't very successful in the summer their business was sort of fall through winter uh, and they really made their money over the winter better for the performers yes of course so the heels at the time would have been Jerry Blackwell, who was a kind of a King Kong Bundy guy who could just take a real beating. He eventually turned face, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Don't they all? <laughs> they, yeah. <laughs> and Sheik Adnan Al-KC. And the real excitement of the High Flyers were their counterparts, the East-West Connection, yeah. Adrian Adonis and Jesse Ventura. And Jesse Ventura was such a great talker. Plus, he was one of the rare guys that was a big muscle man. And that wasn't necessarily the case with the AWA. You had these old-timers like Baron Von Raschke and Mad Dog Vachon that were tough as hell, but weren't impressive. Their, their physiques, physiques yeah. weren't impressive. So that's around the time that I got introduced to it, and it quickly became a ritual for me to watch CKND Channel 12 on Saturdays, the wrestling program, and uh, I, was, I was glad that I had a schedule that allowed for me to plop down in front of the TV, like you said, uh, Looney Tunes, and yep. then wrestling. And so I was there when they introduced some of the most key characters in right. wrestling history. So Andre was already established, Mean Gene was already established, yeah. but, you know... Uh, a specific individual wrestler and a specific tag team. Yeah, and we'll get there in a second. I want to back things up just slightly, going back to my own uh, yes, introduction. Yes, your, so, your turn. You know, really, and I've heard this through listening to other podcasts, through reading things. Like, you know, people always have a story about, like, how did you become a fan? And it's usually based on, I saw this match. You know, I this pay-per-view, this angle. And I'm in a situation where I can't point to a specific date or time because I grew up in a household of people watching wrestling. And people have to realize, in a house in the mid-70s, I was born in the early 70s, in the mid-70s that had three channels, and one of them's got wrestling on, and there's three boys in the house, and my dad, and, you know, like, there's, it's going to be on, you know? So it was on. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even know what wrestling was. I wasn't even talking, and I'm in the room and wrestling's on. So in my mind, as I grow up and start to have memories, wrestling was always there saturday wrestling was just a part of our life you know like i'm not going to miss those bugs bunny cartoons and i loved wrestling and my brothers were kind of into it in those very very early days just long enough to get me hooked and then they were kind of bah, done with it and i was like no way i was obsessed i was and i was hanging on and it got that obsession just got stronger and stronger as we moved through the 80s but through 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 the 70s and very early 80s with the awa you know, I re it really made it meant a lot to me, and I would get so upset when my parents would make like dinner plans, especially when we were at the lake. 
you know, at the cabin and we, you know, we'd go over to someone's house and I knew they didn't have TV. <laughs> like we had a TV at our cabin, but they didn't have a TV at their cabin. I'm like, but mom, I'm not going to be able to watch wrestling, you know? And it was a big deal that I would miss a week of wrestling because you're not DVRing it. A VHS doesn't even exist yet, right? There's no way to record it. If you're not sitting in front of that TV paying attention, you're not seeing it. Wow. So it Pre was... VHS things. That's right. Yeah. Oh my God. And one of the reasons why... I have strong feelings and strong recollections, but not the same kind of specific memories that I do about WWF, rock and wrestling era, is because AWA, I saw it once. You know, I saw that TV show once and then basically never saw it again. Like later in life, maybe I saw some clips that I recognized. I'm like, oh yeah, I saw that, that interview or I saw that match. But for the most part, I didn't have that opportunity to like watch a match 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 times like I did with some of the WWF videos that I had. So it becomes sort of vague memories, not specific memories, but they're warm, fuzzy memories. They're good memories, but it is funny. It is interesting how when people look back at the AWA, they were, you know, they had a, they had a format and they stuck to it pretty hardcore. And as the wrestling business started to change, Fern didn't really want to change away from that format. And that was sort of, you know, one of many of his downfalls. Okay, so this is a special update to our AWA coverage. We've been working on this podcast for a long time, and we realized after we had already recorded some AWA material that we, like so many others, were wrong. What's this weed business? You put your mouth on the line. I'm just sitting here... Okay, yeah. All right, no. all right, okay. Yes, we, we were wrong. We were, we're sorry. We were wrong. So, during part of the title lineage of the AWA, it is often mistakenly thought that Pat O'Connor was named the first ever AWA champion by the st- status that he was the NWA champion and had been challenged to defend the title during the creation of the AWA. If you go on Wikipedia, if you go on several other sites, You'll find this information. You'll see Pat O'Connor listed as the first champion. But this, my friends, is incorrect. The man George Shire, who I would take his word over everybody else's when it comes to the AWA, has made a very strong case on why that is not right. And so we're here to talk about that. And in the show, you're going to hear us say the wrong thing, that Pat O'Connor was named the first AWA champion. But here's the truth. When they made that challenge... Their plan was for it not to be answered, as we, you know, as we talked about, and he was not the champion. George has all of the programs from that time to prove it, and the Articles of Incorporation, which named Vern Gagne as the first champion in that paperwork. So we're here to spread reality, truth. In other words, it was a kayfabe challenge. Now, yeah. this will give me a chance to say that the term kayfabe generally means the uh, fictional aspect of wrestling so a a kayfabe injury means they weren't really hurt and i have a theory i can't prove it but kayfabe is kind of like pig pig latin for fake (laughs) kayfabe you got the k sound and the fay kayfabe so that's my thought yeah but when people talk about shoot interviews it's generally considered that they are being sincere and talking about (laughs) somewhat (laughs) their version of sincere (laughs) yeah as Corey's pointed out the memories of the performers is often pretty shaky compared to the eyewitnesses who recorded it and watched the actual matches (laughs) a hundred times so that's right anyway just a a very brief i don't know if any word nerds are out there but uh, you already knew this if you're listening you already know the difference between kayfabe and shoot but there you go So to be clear, the fake challenge, that's 100% real. 
the naming of Pat O'Connor. <laughs> That's just funny how you put it. The fake challenge is real. The fake challenge is the real. real challenge is fake. <laughs> the real challenge is fake. And now I just blew your mind. That's right. <laughs> but as I said, so that goes to teach us a lesson as, as we look on the internet for information about anything, wrestling, other stuff. Just because you read it doesn't make it true. Now back to your regularly scheduled program, meaning us talking about the AWA. So just to back up for one second, what is your sort of general knowledge of like how the AWA became, you know, came into existence? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So basically, Vern Gagne became very famous as like a college athlete and all this stuff. And then basically he became famous because the Dumont Network in the 50s was showing like primetime wrestling. And outside of like the mid 80s boom of wrestling, and many people will tell you back then that... Dumont Network, does that mean like NBC? Yeah, basically, yeah, something something like the Chicago something. Second half, we're going to get our details straight on this. I've never even heard of. So he he became... Dumont. Yes. It was this huge, you know, one of the first stations or whatever. Before ABC, NBC, CBS. Yeah, or it was an affiliate of that. Um, You know, again, we're going to correct yourselves in the second half of this. But, you know, I've heard that name over and over again. I I assume it's something legit. I've never Um, heard it. And so he was their big star, you know, and he was on TV wrestling. He? Vern Gagne. He was the U.S. champion, I believe, was the title that he was holding. He wasn't world champion, but he was like a U.S. champion and basically became more famous than the NWA world champion because he had more TV coverage. More people in the country could see Vern Gagne represented as the top champion of this wrestling program than the actual world champion. So he had a lot of leverage. Well, actual world champion, you mean, that's still subjective, isn't it? Oh, I've got, <laughs> yeah. my apologies, of course. But back then, so we're talking pre-1960, the NWA kind of had, like, there's all these territories, but they all belonged, essentially, for the most part, with probably some exceptions, to the NWA. Everyone kind of had a regional champion, and they all kind of filtered up to that world champion, that NWA world champion. So then, basically, in 1960, the I believe it was called, like, the NWA Minneapolis or Minnesota or whatever it might be, they pull out of the NWA, and Vern Gagne and, you know, some other contacts, they create the AWA. And part of creating the AWA... And they bring in the Winnipeg Jets and their rookie of start league. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, they, they start up, their own, they start up their, own, their own wrestling organization. They challenge the NWA champion and basically give him, like, a number of days. And it's all kayfabe, right? It's all, like, you know, it's all bullshit. But, you know, he puts out that challenge. And if you don't answer the challenge, then I'm, I'm the world champion. And that's basically how they establish Vern Gagne as the AWA world champion. Mm. <laughs> and this is all television was key to this. Yes, yeah. It was all about TV. Well, at this point he's now oh, yeah. he's now he's having to make his own connections and get TV on, you know, like I said in Chicago and Wisconsin and in Minnesota and all that stuff all on his own, which he does. And through the 60s they're a successful promotion. I think the peak of the AWA if I understand correctly from reading books, uh, uh, there's a gentleman named Roy Shire, he's mm. sort of known as like the the AWA guru. He's like this guy's got like a basement full of like every he had the the magazines from the cards like you know the card like the, the things you get if you went to live wrestling the the program cooler. program thank you he's got all these programs he could tell you every angle from the 50s you know 60s 70s he's got it all like you know i've heard him talk he's he knows everything so sounds like the most successful time for the awa was the 70s into that very early 80s of course riding what they had with hulk hogan and other things to like a blistering peak that you know Drops off, unfortunately, for them as the territory 
era crumbles. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a story for another day. But so you, you said the 60s is when the AWA kind of launched 1960 and broke? is, I believe, when they, they started, they broke away from the NWA, which is a similar timeline, I believe, for the McMahons. And World Wrestling Federation, you know, Worldwide Wrestling Federation. WWWF. Yeah. Three W's. That's right. So, you know, that's the time when the the business changed dramatically because basically a bunch of businessmen looked at the people that were, you know, in charge of the NWA and said, no, <laughs> no, you're not going to, we can't live with only getting the world champion coming to our arena a couple times a year. We need, we need that attraction ourselves. So that all sets the stage for... What shaped my wrestling reality, yeah. which I bought into, three world champions. Yes. And this was reinforced by good old wrestling magazines. Yeah. Bill Apter and his cohorts. Oh, yeah. Um, the Apter magazines were so great. I, I just loved them. I felt like it was, if I look back now, I feel like it's today's insider information, but, wrote, but delivered kayfabe. You know, right. like... And it kept the illusion and the magic of wrestling together. Like, Bill After did such a great job of working with them to make it look like he was pulling the curtain back, but he wasn't really. Because, yes, a lot of people knew that wrestling was fake. I even knew as a little kid, my brothers spoiled it for me. They they spoiled Santa Claus. They certainly spoiled, you know, they certainly spoiled wrestling wasn't real when I was a little kid. So it wasn't about that, but just the general perception of how, like, the crowd looked at the way wrestling worked. You know, they didn't know the ins and outs of it. They just knew that who their heroes were and, you know, who they wanted to cheer for and stuff like that. And key to it all was the behavior of the wrestlers who mm-hmm. weren't allowed to socialize with their enemies. Mm-hmm. And watching TV lately, the production that The Rock was behind, you hear again and again these guys say, if you got caught breaking those kayfabe rules and palling around with somebody that you should be beaten up, you were done. Yeah. Yeah, it really affected you in a, in a large way. And the territory business back then, especially when I first was watching, because I, I, I do have these faint memories of like 75, 76, 77. I think 77 is when it really starts to kind of hit in. And I'm literally only four or five years old. But I've, I've, seen, I've seen interview clips from like 75, and I should not know anything from 75. I was born in 73. But I'm like, uh, that looks so familiar. Like, uh, this is deja vu. I've seen this. You know, like Andre being interviewed by Mean Gene. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, I've, you know. From 75. Yeah. And I see a clip in like 2016 that I haven't seen since I was a little kid. So I'm like, how the heck do I remember this? Like, wow, you have such a head start. I will have not seen a fraction of what you saw, <laughs> whether or not you were actually watching. Yes, <laughs> that's right. I was just in the room playing with my toys or something. But, uh, you know, amazing. it was it, uh, another thing that I think was really big. And to me, this was really solid is that. I didn't know there was other wrestling. Do you re- do you recall? Like, did you were you aware? When did you maybe become aware that there was something other than the AWA? Well, actually, before the AWA. So my earliest memory would be watching TV in a department store. My mom took me along when I was maybe six or seven or eight. I don't think we were in Winnipeg. Yeah, I lived in the Maritimes as a kid, maybe PEI, or we also lived in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And there it was on the television. Several televisions, right? A department store. <laughs> right, the, the window of televisions. Yeah. Um, as it goes, we were, I was indoors, and my mom happily, you know, said, okay, you stay here. Stay right here, you know. It yeah. was a more innocent time, trusting time. Yeah. Where people didn't handcuff their children to themselves. Right. Anyway, there was a wrestling show on, and it was a lot like the AWA, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been on the East Coast. Not very right. likely. Very unlikely. What I remember were 
some angles. I actually remember some angles. A guy wrestling under a mask, <laughs> and then the mask coming off, and, oh my god, it's actually blah, 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 blah. And then the crowd going, ah! <laughs> and I also had this knowledge that not everybody was as strong, capable, or is likely to win. Like, yeah. there was, I saw two guys fighting, and somebody goes down pretty easily, and like, okay, that's interesting. And yeah. I think I watched, I got to watch about three or four matches. I watched long enough to see some guy, an ass kicker, come back in later, wear a mask as a so-called jobber, and then give, <laughs> you know, the heel this real hard time. That's what it had to be, because, like, this guy takes off his mask, and everybody's like, ah! So I'm pretty sure that sounds to me to entertain a crowd. You yeah. would throw in a so-called jobber like yeah. the conquistadors, yes. you know. But really, the conquistadors, both of them are Chris Jericho. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> and, you know the you know, Edge Christian. They did that yeah. too. Yeah. So, and I mean, clearly, I was interested. These dramatic themes. This. Yeah narrative of switcheroos and tough guys and bullies and heroes was you know and people being cheered people being booed it was a different kind of sports it was storytelling sports and yeah obviously at that time i wouldn't have understood the difference between is it real is it's fake it's just i was mesmerized mm -hmm. so if i looked up what promotion was wrestling in the east coast in 1978 yeah, i could probably tell tricky. you yeah, I, I can say the guy looked like a Dutch man tell there's a good There's a good chance you were watching American television. Like, you might have been picking up, they might have been showing a, you know, North, any one of a number of promotions from from, the, from New England. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's so close. The Maritimes are so close to all those smaller states in the yeah. north, northeast part of America that, yeah. So I would be interested to see if yeah. I could figure it out. But, but there was a big bushy beard. Somebody had kind of a full bushy Dutch <laughs> yeah. mantel, or a, not that he has a beard, but he sure got a lot of whiskers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that was fun. And then somehow I came across it in Winnipeg, and it took a little while before I was able to cement it into my schedule. I'm not going to miss a week if I can help it, like you're saying. Yeah. And that is my first memory of wrestling, the TV section at the department store. And then, because I moved around a lot as a kid. My, yeah. my mom went to the East Coast and we lived in two or three different cities from, uh, whatever, grades one, two, and three. And yeah. we came back to Winnipeg when I was in grade three. So that means eight years old. So sometime after that, I probably got to watch wrestling. And by the time I'm 10, I'm pretty sure that uh, this would be 1982 yeah. that, I, that I'm watching and really interested. Yeah. And then maybe a year or two later, I get to see a show. But wow. we, don't, we don't have to actually... My mom took me to see some wrestling. Uh, I don't know if you want to go down that path. We'll get right there now. in a second, I think. Yeah. Like, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's hover around the 70s for a moment. I, I well, think... what wrestlers that I haven't mentioned... Well, you know, obviously Vern Gagne and Nick Bonkwinkle are still... like. Bockwinkle was champ when I can remember because he was the champ mostly in the 70s. Vern held the belt forever. I think he gave it up once. And then finally, Nick Bockwinkle was the guy that came along that Vern respected, trusted, and thought he could build his business around. And he gave Nick Bockwinkle, you know, he didn't give it to him, but, you know, he put him in that position. Passed the torch. And he, and Nick Bockwinkle, like Vern Gagne, had an incredibly long run. <laughs> I think, we'll, we'll look it up in the second half. It's quite comical. I think Vern Gagne was like, champ for almost 15 years or something like that but nick bogwinkle i think he has like a like a six-year title reign and then maybe loses it once and gets it back and it uh, felt like he'd been there forever oh yeah when i tuned in and oh is 
and you know we'll we'll get back to this in the, especially we can watch a match in the second half with him. What a fantastic performer! Oh my God, he's he's so great, especially even at the end of his career. It's incredible how good he is when he's like nearing fifty or maybe even his early fifties. And then the amazing thing about Nick Bonkwinkle was that he never he never established a specific true finisher. He he used all these different techniques and moves, and he finished matches so many different ways, so you wouldn't necessarily see the end coming kind of thing. I felt more like he was a sleeper guy. but that's... I think that was more of, the, it came up, and I know what you're talking about. There was definitely Later. an angle in the, in, near the end of the Vern Gagne, Nick Bonkwinkle cycles, where I think they had like a, like a stipulation in a match that was like a sleeper match. Like the only way to win was to put your, you know, oh, okay. your opponent to sleep, well, and I think a lot of that's. And he did use that, but I mean, he would pin people off a pile driver. He would, you know, he would use different types of, you know, whatever. I'm, I, I'm not doing a good job of illustrating my point, but you know, he just was really capable. He could wrestle at a really high tempo, and he could just do all these great moves. So some of the other guys are like Pat Patterson was through there. Ray Stevens, Ray Stevens, and Pat Patterson are just crazy bump machines. And they were so entertaining to watch. I hated them because they're bad guys. You know, I was, I was at the age where definitely, unlike, you know, 1986, Corey, who's like all like, hey, I'm starting to like the bad guys. No, no, 70s, it's like you, you just cheer for the good guys. And the Crusher, Bruiser. So one of the things about AWA and the success they had in the 70s and into the early 80s is they didn't transition well. So they lost their young stars. And then all of a sudden they found themselves like, oh boy, all of our guys, all our top guys are in their, you know, 50s, basically. And they all kind of, you know, lost their value at the same time. It did make the high flyers exciting because they, oh, yeah, yeah. they were young. Yes, <laughs> yes. Because, you know, Bruiser, Crusher, uh, Larry, Larry the Axe Henning. Like, you know, these, yeah. these... I can now see how, you know, experienced you know, the roster. And one of the neat things is that through the late 70s and early 80s is that a lot of... Uh, Brad a lot Riggins, of, remember? Brad, I totally remember Brad Riggins. He, he, not, not too, he's pretty unpopular, I'd say, in the sort of local, you know, the, the current community of people talking about AWA who maybe didn't watch a lot of AWA, and they look back at it, and they're looking at this guy going, what? But the one thing I did like about him is I was just obsessed with, like, suplexes and different types of slams, and, and Brad Riggins would do, like, these moves that, like, a lot of other people weren't doing. He did this great... He would Irish whip a guy, and then he'd catch him with the belly-to-belly, belly, but almost like a power slam, you know? Like, and he was a legitimate wrestler. Of course, yeah, and that's what Vern, Vern loved, you know? And that helped to establish this as a sport. Yes. You know, which yeah. was heavy AWA style. Yeah, AWA wanted to present the action in the ring as a real sport, as a true contest, uh, and mm-hmm. they really did rely heavily on actual wrestlers, the Billy Robinsons and these people of the era, like, you know, they, that's what they, they leaned into, did you ever, or are you aware of the 1970, I think, four, I believe, uh, Hollywood, quote-unquote, movie, The Wrestler? With Vern Gagne? Yeah. Yes, I am. Yeah. So, you know, and there's a lot of great cameos of people playing. Like, I think Vern and Billy Robinson are the only ones who actually change their names and kind of play, like, you know, fake characters. Right. Really are just themselves. Uh, but, like, everybody else who's in there is, like, you see a young Nick Bockwinkle in there. You, see, you know, Ric Flair, I think, has an appearance. Like, you know, in tons and tons. There's probably a list of 20, 30 people in there. And so that's a big part of, like, if you watch that movie, it kind of, like, tells the story. of It's kind of Vern's own story. It's like him almost doing, like, a little bio. And, like, you know, one of the things in the movie is, like, the Super Bowl of wrestling. And that was sort of, you know, something he would talk about. That idea of, like, how do we get, like, how do we get the AWA champion and the NWA champion to finally actually show off in a way that's going to not end in a draw, right? Like, never happened, but that was the goal. And he just, they could never pull it off because 
you know, let's face it, all these promotions are their own businesses, and they, they, they don't want to. It's not reasonable. For, yeah, exactly. You know, Coke and Pepsi get together, and Pepsi yeah. says, you, you take it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <Nope. laughs> so one of the things that I really loved that I remember as a little kid was, you know, not only was Mean Gene's interview segment so great, but it was that it was the local promos, like the you know the things that built up the matches coming up, and one of the great things that I'm sure the other territories must have done this as well. But in the AWA, they would like if they were promoting a cage match, the wrestlers would do the interview on the set with like the chicken wire, like someone's like either holding it up or it's been propped up in front of them, but they're they're on the other side because they don't got the big blue steel cage, you know, cage WWF cage. They've got like. They got the tight little yeah, chicken the, wire fence. Yeah, that, that grid. Yeah, thing. Uh, the WrestleMania two King Kong Bundy versus yeah, Hulk Hogan, which they used for I several thought, years actually. Yeah, right, I always remember thinking that's not really a cage. Well, I think they looked at it and they were like, Bundy and Hogan can't climb those flimsy cages, so that's why they put up the big bars, you know, because their whole their whole purpose of a of, of a cage match, which people will talk about, is sort of backwards thinking, right? Cage match is supposed to be like trap them in there and make a, make sure there's a winner and no outside interference. And the WF turned it into like whoever can escape the cage. <laughs> I know. Best scaredy cat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he, Bruno's supposed to what? He's supposed to run away? Like, I that, am you know? the greatest coward in the <laughs> WF and I'll be out of that cage before you've even been checked by the ref. <laughs> so I just love those. You know, you never see a cage match on TV other than maybe a little clip of it. But you would, the promos for it, that's what you would, you know. Actually, one of the times I went to the arena, there was a cage match. Oh, wow. Back then, especially, it would take them forever to set up those cages, too. So they'd have to take a big, long intermission, you know, and it was really the, the drama and the tension of it all, right? Like, yeah. not like now they just lower the cage down from the ceiling or something. But I'm a, I'm a little hesitant to make too many declarative statements before we hit the internet and I make a fool of myself. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, yeah, it was June, September. Oh, and, and uh, you know, Bob Kinkle was there, retired. <laughs> like, okay, all right, listen, I was, <laughs> I had some popcorn. Wasn't invented yet. Ah! So... I think that, like, coming out of the 70s and into the 80s, it was like, you know, I was just, like you said, really enjoying the high flyers. Jim Brunzel was, my, to, for my money, the best dropkick in the business ever. Like. Yeah, and he also, he had uh, the physique. So the little dash of that uh, muscle yeah, man. he did. Especially when you look at mid-80s, late-80s, WWF, Jim Brunzel, go look at late 70s, early 80s, AWA Jim Brunzel. He's much more impressive physically. Like, you know, he's thick in the WWF. He's muscular in the AWA, oh. and and it's I was I was watching a clip of him last night, and I was like, oh wow, like you know, look at the look at the abs and the you know, like he's actually like looking pretty intimidating, like the way he is. But as Jeff mentioned, Greg Gagne was just the scrawniest of the scrawny. The only other person I can remember, and it's not even from the right era, was the 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 early days of Jeff Jarrett. Seeing him in magazines, he was the skinniest kid you've ever seen, and I was like, I would see like you know. U- USWA or whatever whatever promotion he was in, champion. And I'd be like, bah, what a joke. <laughs> ah, but you're forgetting about three-ton Kendall Wyndham. Oh, yes, yes. Scarecrow. Oh, Ken- my Ken- God. Kendall Wyndham. Kendall Wyndham. He yeah. di- I did see him finally jobber on WCW, like wow. about 15 years later. And, you know, he had 15 years to, like, fill out. But yeah, yeah, yeah. the early photographs of Barry... Oh. Barry yeah. Wyndham's younger brother. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about uh, Black Jack Mulligan. Yes. Okay, so he had a couple of kids, and Barry Wyndham was one of our favorites. We won't go too far yeah, down yeah. this. But anyway, yeah, skinniest wrestler of all time that I saw. <laughs> I remember Kendall Wyndham uh, could barely fill in his cow- cowboy boots. <laughs> I'll, I'll was... send you a link for the uh, 
the Billington Bulldogs. These are these are Dynamite Kid's nephews or something. And this kid, one of them's almost got some muscle. The other one was like skinny, like he looked like he was eighty five pounds. The young bucks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so lots to talk about. You know, there's lots of great wrestlers that came through the AWA, and I even remember now. I'd look and go like, there's obviously the key guys we know that McMahon took. To crumble the AWA. He basically pulled all the legs out from underneath Vern. You know, he took the biggest pieces he could. But there's also other guys that I don't think of as being AWA guys that were in the AWA. Like, I'd watch like... Uh, well, we haven't mentioned Tito Santana. Well, of course, that's, as, what, that's, the, that's exactly sorry. where I was going. Yeah, okay. like the best of the 80s, AWA. It's a, it was a VHS release that they did right before the company went out of business. And they did, like, of course, going back and showing all the early 80s and the, the great stuff that was there. And who, of was course, he, who was he fighting? I don't remember who Tito was fighting here in the AWA. I can't even remember. Because he literally was just, a, it was like a montage you know, this one of the it was part of that show. Eric Bischoff is actually this is when he still worked for the AWA, so he's the host of the of the tape, hmm. and he takes you through it. And I had that tape recorded, so I'd seen it several times, and then didn't see it for years and years and years. And then I finally came across it last year, and I watched it during this. I watched part of it, and it had a montage of different singles wrestlers. And there's Tito Santana. And I was like, whoa, Tito! Like, which is funny because when I get to WWF, my memories are all blurry. But I'm like, I bet you, like, I bet you back then. I probably remember that I already knew him, but like by the time I, years and years and years later, I, I start thinking I only know him from WWF. Well, I guess we'll have to take a look and see who Tito feuded with in his AWA heyday. Yeah. I remember just that I knew who he was and that I thought he was great. Yeah. But I also, it's, it's yeah, like you say, really fuzzy. So yeah. I guess he was gone really quickly because he yeah, was... probably in and out. And I think the territory business was built that way that... Wrestlers, for the most part, didn't stick around in any particular territory for very long. Because, for the most part, in the territory days, they're hitting the same town every week. Right? Not a, not a monthly show. Not a come three times a year, twice a year. We're going to the same show every week. Trying to sell 2,000, 3,000 tickets or whatever. And if you keep showing up with the same 12 wrestlers, you know, that's not going to last very long. So, right. certain people, the you know, the people who own the, the, the promotion, you know, and their family, maybe they're there and they're not moving. But, every, you know, all the rest of the chairs on the deck mm. are getting moved around to try and freshen it up. So, these guys would bounce from territory to territory to territory. Right. And then they could come back. Okay. So, I feel we're somewhat amiss discussing Nick Bockwinkle yes. without discussing who, for me, was his classic enemy. Yeah. And go ahead and... Read my brain here. Well, you're not going to be talking about Vern Gagne because we already talked no, about him. No, uh, it's and he's a heel. Yeah, for me, the quintessential villain. Okay. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Are we getting to the biggest star of all time here? Is no, that no, 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 no. I'm not. We're still saving the two guys. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 you know, we're still saving our big pops. Yeah. But for me, oh, Mad Dog, Rick Martel. Oh, okay. Now we're, we're eighty. Yeah, we're into eighty three, eighty four. Yeah. Was, okay. So then I. Yeah, that's I have, why. That's why I lost you because I didn't think. Right. So keep going though. So well then. So eighty three is Martel because well, he's will, champ in eighty four. Okay. So, but but the struggle for yes. me was like I was rooting for someone to dethrone this long time. Oh yeah. This you know this dad champ yeah, Nick Bockwinkle, yeah, yeah. and he never raised his voice, but he was so condescending in his interviews. Oh yeah. Quite articulate and well-spoken and it was definitely a different style from mad dog shouting and mm-hmm. so i have memories of him wrestling greg Ganya, but greg Ganya not getting the belt from of course, of course and then 
this young French Canadian strong <laughs> wrestler who really was exciting in the ring yeah. came along and more sleeper battles. <laughs> Maybe I'm getting all my stuff mixed up, but if you mention Nick Bockwinkle, for me, you got to mention Rick Martel as you yeah. know, excitement, AWA excitement. Rick Martel, right. yeah, he he, it was pretty good. Like he he took the job, and then he realized after he became champion. Okay, wait. so. When you say he, we have to just be Sorry. clear. So Rick Martel did eventually dethrone Nick Bockwinkle mm-hmm. after his big six right. long run. So we were like, yes, new, like new. He was young, yes, and he was strong, yes, and he kicked the old fuddy duddy out of his comforted. You yeah, know, and he broke through the the, the false finishes that the AWA and most of the territories were sort of stuck on, right? Like just keep teasing that the guy won. Well, you know, you didn't win, you right? Know, like that kind of thing. So, so Rick Martel finally got through. Yeah, so he was. For us, he was like the Hogan for a yes. while there. You know, Rick Martel, yep. That's, they tried, he was they the tried, champ. They tried to run with that. And one of the interesting things, and I've, I, I, Rick Martel's he's probably the only wrestler you'll ever see in one of these shoot interviews who kind of refuses, other than Tom Zink, to shit on anyone. Like, he's the most polite guy. He doesn't have anything bad to say about anybody. Everybody's good. But he, he did express frustration when he was AWA champ because he didn't work. Like, they didn't, like, he was never, he never did anything, you know? Like, he did interviews. Like, he was frustrated that he didn't get to defend the title. When Vern was champion, he would defend the title a handful of times a year. He wouldn't, he wasn't out there every week, every two weeks defending the title. So all of a sudden, he goes from, like, the chase, where he's wrestling all the time, and he's wrestling on TV all the time, to now I'm just walking around wearing sunglasses and a suit carrying the belt, but I'm actually not doing a lot of wrestling. Mm -hmm. And he was, it just really frustrated him. And that's why he asked them to take the belt off him. Because he was like... He asked them to take the belt? Yes, he did. Well, I do remember not liking that Stan Hansen beat him. It (laughs) also seemed like the way they... They made it look like Stan Hansen beat him clean. It wasn't really cheaty. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a different type of cheating. So yeah. people who aren't familiar with the finish, like a, maybe an ambush outside the ring, yes, and then put him in the ring and like you beat him up so bad outside the ring that you got him yeah. in the ring, and it's like yeah. is it really cheating? Yeah. So they well, had a match. Before and, we get too okay. far, I want to mention the Terry Gordy match that I saw oh, versus okay. Rick Martel as world champion. Yeah, I didn't see it until maybe a year and a half ago. Okay, and it was so good. Yeah, I mean Terry Gordy. It is Terry most, Gordy's amazing. When everybody recognizes that he's like world class, you know, forgive the pun because he yeah, wrestled yeah, exactly. in world class, and but he was also this kind of star quality. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so it was not an AWA. Like when I Googled it, or, or probably I should say YouTubed, and got to see this wonderful match that I had no idea existed. So how, how did that happen? How did Terry Gordy versus Rick Martel as AWA champion get past me yeah. until two years ago on YouTube? Can you explain? The well, because they, prob- they probably didn't, A, they probably didn't air that match on TV, per se. So it was on ESPN or like, I yeah, feel like it was so a different we, network. We were, up until 86, our only AWA exposure was the syndicated all-star wrestling show on Saturdays. They had other broadcasts that were similar to ours and they had but then they also had ones that were like you know maybe where they showed better matches so there are and they recorded stuff that we never saw so and the the, the transition to ESPN happened a lot earlier than we ever saw it i wasn't even watching you know like and, and we were, i was going to save this for a bit later but like the idea that like when when WF takes over our tv i kind of lose track of the AWA like i i know they exist but they're not on that tv spot they eventually pop back up. I'm not even sure how long. There's a there's an AWA show in Win- that's on Winnipeg TV, and somehow I'm not even watching it. And this is during a time when I was like 
scouring for wrestling. And I was like watching like, you know, I'd watch the local promotion, the Tony Candela promotion. And as I was finding more wrestling through different avenues, I was so excited. And I feel like it wasn't until about 87 that I finally kind of caught, caught on to the TSN broadcasting the ESPN AWA show. And at that point, they're in desperate straits. So they're like, they're just putting... They're putting all their best stuff on TV because they're like they're just trying to like get anybody to like watch the show. So you know it's hard to watch a watered down version of something you loved. Yeah, like it had Bad Company and the Midnight Rockers. Yeah, yeah they, they right? had some good. They, they, those were good things. You know, like that was that was a great. That was totally what I saw coming in. Uh, Ken Patera was there uh, coming off of his uh, little run in, run in prison. Yeah, I didn't and, mean to say any of those guys were particularly bad or anything yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. but they had lost that. Yeah, they didn't have, it was like, they you know they still had Kurt Henning. They, they still had up-and-comers, had, yeah. but they didn't have. They had some up-and-comers, and they had some really old guys, and that was about it. And then, you know, McMahon was still like, every once in a while, reaching over and going, thank you, <laughs> taking whoever he wanted. Just stealing them away. So there's the Terry Gordy, Terry Gordy versus Rick Martel is an example of what we wanted more of. Yes. And then I discovered it 20 years, no, 30 years later. I just watched it and thought, why didn't I get to see this? That's right. Yeah, you, you basically lived with the, the imagination of the matches. You know, you saw the promos, Bobby Heenan, whoever's talking you into the building... And, but you don't get to go to that building. <laughs> yeah, what else is out, you know, it made me wonder what other great matches were on ESPN that, uh, you know, are yet to be discovered. Rick Martel, yeah. if, if Rick Martel versus Terry Gordy's out there and it was a, it was quite a good match, yeah. it makes me wonder what other, you know, Yeah, you know, and I, we talk with Terry Gordy, it's like, I remember, I can't remember what, you know, where I was watching it, but listening to Michael Hayes talk about sort of the, the Freebirds run in the AWA, which... In the movie Highlander, like the opening scene is famously this AWA match, and it's the High Flyers and the Tonga Kid somehow are like on one side in a six man tag, and the other side is the Freebirds, like the actual Freebirds. And it's literally the opening of the movie Highlander, if you haven't seen it. It's, it's just awesome. It's like one of the greatest wrestling scenes in a movie ever. Like, I don't, I don't know what, what could possibly top that. They capture the excitement. The oh, crowd yeah. has got. And the crowd looks huge. And, yeah, yeah, huge. And, and like, they're, you know, that's something. There's no fake in that. That crowd was into that match. That's yeah. not phony. Like, that's, yeah. a, you know, 10,000 people screaming their brains out and they're loving it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so they were in there for their run, and Michael Hayes would always say, oh, him and Terry Gordy, their plan was always, when you're at the top, that's when you leave. Because that's how you keep your money up. Like, you, you always leave them wanting more. So they had been in the AWA for a stretch of time. They weren't necessarily being used in the way, the best way possible. And then right near the end, they like they get this they get a couple of matches against the Road Warriors, and then Vern's like, "All right, you know he wants to run this match for like two years straight on the host circuit." And they're like, "Oh no, we're going!" Like they're going back to Texas or wherever they're going. And he's just like, "No, you gotta stay." And he's like, "No, we're we're leaving. We already signed. Like we already told him we're coming." And and so they just it was that example of like that era of like handshake deals, no contracts. The wrestlers didn't have the protection. But then, therefore, neither did the promotion, neither did the organization. They didn't have wrestlers signed up to contracts, you know, and like, and that's why it was so easy for McMahon to get all of those wrestlers to come to his promotion because he's offered them better money, and it wasn't like they had to worry about some contract they'd signed because they were all just, you know, working under the assumption of, like, you know, that agreement. The old age of, like, the wrestlers need to travel around to keep themselves valuable, and then all of a sudden, before the territories figured it out, it was like, well, wait a minute, we need to sign them before <laughs> before they leave. And so that was an interesting sort of like realization of 
how that worked out. Yeah, is it possible to get back on track, or are we just, are we <laughs> yeah. just this is the track? Yeah. The reset it would be very difficult. Yeah, like how do we how how, do, how would we get back the territory system? It seems impossible, and I think that's one of the things I was trying to get at with this episode is, and going back to the idea that I didn't know about other wrestling and and how important where you live and how old you are is to like you know your experience. So clearly your age is going to dictate what, you know, era you're watching. So if you started watching in the 90s, you know, this is your thing. Or if you started watching, you know, rock and wrestling, okay, if you started watching in the 60s, this is your thing. But the where is equally important, especially in those couple of decades, few decades, where you didn't have, Winnipeg didn't have access to world-class championship wrestling. We didn't have Florida championship wrestling. We didn't have Mem- wrestling from Memphis. You know, we didn't even freaking have WWF until 1986. So... We really were affected by that, and it's so neat. I really, like, I really value the the idea of like hearing the stories of like someone similar age to us, maybe a bit younger, whatever, who is in somewhere, you know, where they're in New Jersey or they're in Tennessee or wherever they are, you know, and what what they were watching in those places that blow my mind. I, you know, I've read and been told like Atlanta, you know, had like ten or twelve hours of syndicated wrestling shows in their you know early to mid eighties. You mean so, per week? Yes. They just, they just, they, they, they had a block of wrestling on the weekend and you could watch like, just list them off. You know, you could just rattle off like every territory. So if you were a wrestling fan in Atlanta, you could see everything. I see. Okay. I misunderstood. It wasn't one territory putting out 12 hours of content. No. It was one out. It was it's one television station or one, one, uh, not yeah. even television station, pardon me, but one, it. one city that had, for it, whatever reason, Access, access going on to all the national regional broadcasts so all you these watch different your, territories you watch yeah. your hour of florida wrestling then yeah. you watch your hour of hollywood wrestling yes. was, <laughs> you know it, it, it's pretty unknown but there was a california yeah, yeah. league and then yeah. and like i googled it and watched a bit of this and yeah. saw a bunch of names and i, I really didn't know you yeah. know like it's so it's always funny to see a wrestler and their gimmick and you have no idea Right, yeah. You see their look and their swagger and everything, and you've never heard of them, and you just think to that yeah. crowd, these guys were as familiar as the high flyers were to us. That's right. And California, when I when I just looked at, uh, you know, some YouTube stuff, that's where I found who are these wrestlers that were wrestling in California. Well, the big thing was Pat Patterson, like you know his stories coming through San Francisco, and that territory sort of fell apart on its own, and and unlike. Most of the territories where McMahon or the Crockett's or whoever made moves against them that kind of you know hurt them and then eventually saw them go under and kind of get absorbed by whatever larger group took over their territory. San Francisco was one where the 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 promoter, I think it's Roy Shire, I believe is the name. He just like he basically just you know put up his hands and asked for that help and you know like like basically like here come take over my territory. I don't you know we're not doing this anymore kind of thing. But San Francisco. Had was famous for having great work rate, and you know guys like Patterson and I think Stevens and some other guys that were there for years who really like you know brought in the houses, big houses all the time, but they were really I think integral in really popularizing battle royals. I remember hearing about that. They had a big deal. It was like an annual battle royal, and it was like that was a really big show. And unfortunately, if I'm getting my story correct, I believe that like. 95% of the footage doesn't exist anymore because they literally recorded over their own stuff. You know, they didn't want to spend money on extra reels or tapes or whatever, so they right. would just tape over each week. Yeah. What a scary thought. You know, this is a little bit off topic, but, like, to that, like, the 
creation of the Four Horsemen name by Arn Anderson is on a local promo to one of their little affiliates. And that was one of those affiliates that just taped over their... Each week they taped over it. So there's, mm-hmm. there literally is no footage that exists within the TV production of that. So the only way... And it hasn't surfaced yet, so I don't think it exists. But the only way that that, that actual promo could exist is if some crazy hungry fan was out there with their VHS or Betamax taping the syndicated weekly shows and somehow held on to it for like, you know, 30, 40 years. You know, that's the only way that would even exist. It's a call out to those yes, fanatics. That's right. Yeah. Who's got that tape? That's right. <laughs> Somebody's right got to have it. Tell us. <laughs> Somebody brought some, you know, grandson or granddaughter probably, you know, after a, after someone passed away, threw out a box of tapes, not realizing that they had the, they had the golden key. So we so were I, saying earlier that yeah. we were already watching when some of the, you know, I would say perhaps the most influ- influential wrestler of all time yeah. and the most influential tag team of all time. So that's one thing we AWA kids got that yep. nobody else got, I feel. In a that, way. In yeah. a way. I know that uh, Hulk Hogan wrestled in the WWF. Right. And he also, you know, I've now seen that he was down in Florida. Memphis, yeah. He, uh-huh. he, he made his way around, yeah. Right. But he hadn't captured that public imagination. Mm-hmm. And, obviously, Rocky III was huge. So, when Rocky III came out, we recognized Hogan. Yeah. But this, I think, it could be argued, was his push to yeah. international stardom. Rocky so III. you have... McMahon Sr., I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, it's pretty well known, but he didn't want, he told Hogan, no, you can't go do that movie. You know, like, for whatever his reasons were, he didn't want the business exposed, he didn't want him away for to that time, whatever the reason was, he didn't realize that a big star was going to make Hogan. So he said no, so then Hogan ended up leaving the territory. The WWWF. That's right. New York area. That's right. Vince's yeah. dad, or Vince McMahon Sr., Senior. the dad. So he left, yeah. And then basically he was in the AWA when that rocket ship, you know, showed up to, you know. Enter the, the a- enter you and me. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I'll, pr- I'll, I'll put it this way, and then because I've got my own story on this, but like, how do you remember seeing Hulk Hogan for the okay. first time? I think it's a light version of your story. Yeah. From behind. Yeah. He was interviewed by Mean Gene, and he kept his back to the camera. Yeah, and it was so effective. Oh yeah, because first off, he was so ju- he was so big. Now I'm not used to seeing Andre and Mean Gene the way you did from yes. you know while you're in diapers. So <laughs> this big big guy to me was more. I had yeah, it was really impressive because I wasn't accustomed to Andre dwarfing Gene. So Hogan's dwarfing Mean Gene, and he's got his back to the camera, and it was just such a cocky way to present himself that I was, I really wanted to go to the arena to see what this guy looked like. Yeah, yeah. And eventually we got to see what Hogan looked like, but yeah, there you go. It took a while, but so my thing was, so this is the summer of 81, so, so at some point they started promoting that Hulk Hogan was coming to the AWA just through commentary. Nothing else. No, no vignettes. No, you know, no interviews. Nothing. Just, just name dropping him. Words. Just words on a microphone. And so, I knew that I was excited about this guy, and I didn't even know who he was. Again, at this point in my life, I'm pretty sure I was unaware that there was anything other than the American Wrestling Association. It's called the American Wrestling Association, so I assumed everybody in Canada and the U.S was watching the Vern Gagne's and Nick Bockwinkel's and, 
and all these people. That's what I thought it was. I didn't know. So, again, they had been talking about it, and there was a show where he was supposed to appear, I believe, and I was getting excited. And this is kind of going back to what I said about my parents taking me to some dinner over the family friends, and I was like, ah, no, no, no. And for some reason, my middle brother, I believe he wasn't there. He did something else. He was with his friends or another family. And so he loved to torment me. He loved to, you know, pick on me, you know, tease me, everything. He, he knew how excited I was about this. So he told me that he saw the show the next week, you know, during, you know, the, that next day or whatever. And he told, he told me that Hulk Hogan wrestled. And then when he got angry, he turned green and got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cam. So I knew that wasn't true. <laughs> But there was a small sliver where I hoped it was. That's fucking great. So, here comes the next Saturday, and my parents are taking us back to the same cabin over the friends with no TV. And I was like, what? So the only thing my little mind could think of to do was I played sick. I started faking being sick in the afternoon. (laughs) A masterful performance. (laughs) But I knew there was a very good chance they were still just going to drag me along, you know, and, you know, stick me on a couch somewhere and be like, oh, you'll be fine, honey. Luckily, my oldest brother, he came through and offered to stay home with me. And I I remember him watching with me and, you know, on the couch. And there it is. There was the first. I want to also throw this out there that for a long time, if you Googled Hulk Hogan AWA debut, there was a video, which you can no longer find. It's been taken down, but... There was a video of Hogan doing an interview in the ring with Johnny Valiant as his manager. And that was the clip that survived for many, many years on the online. And I saw it, and then like a month later it was gone. And I've never been able to find it since. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not his debut. It's what you're talking about. It's the local promo. So there's Mean Gene talking. Johnny Valiant comes into the screen, starts talking about his man. And then early on as they're talking, whatever the, whatever whatever they're saying, all of a sudden... The camera goes black because Hogan comes from behind the cameraman and steps directly in front of it, his entire back covering the entire lens. And then he slowly moves forward so you can just make out the shape of his shoulder and his bicep. And just a little bit more, you can make out a tiny bit more. And that's how they did You could hear them. That's how he did the whole interview. And then I think he finally walked out of the frame without ever seeing him. And then the next week, same thing, except for he kept moving further and further away from the camera. It was multiple weeks until eventually he was, I, I did find a video recently where he does, he's not up against the camera like he was at this point, but he walks into the frame with, with his back to the camera. He won't let you see his face. He's flexing. He's, you know, he's posing. He's doing all that stuff, showing off his back muscles and his biceps and, you know, saying some of the, you know, you can hear the Hulk Hogan voice. He hasn't quite mastered the character yet because he's not a good guy. He's, you know, he's, he's playing the heel. And that was my, and then eventually he finally debuted in like a handicap match. They did a lot of like squash matches with, you know, two jobbers. He'd be doing the test of strength, one on each arm, <laughs> chuck these guys off. But that was, you know, and that format, that idea of how to introduce a character, like my imagination ran wild. There's no written script you could do for somebody to make it a better intro than that. You know, modern wrestling, I always joke, it, Hulk Hogan introduced in modern wrestling by week six, he would have been left laying in the ring. You know, like, <laughs> never mind the fact that, like, you know, he's this monster in our head, right? I didn't know about Shea Stadium. I didn't know he'd already wrestled Andre and slammed Andre. I didn't know about, you know, all these other televised things that he'd already done, arm wrestling contests in different places. All this stuff. It already happened, but I didn't know about any of that wrestling. So for me, 
it wasn't until Hogan left the AEW, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be wrong, but it wasn't until around that time, that's when I finally like noticed Hogan on the cover of a magazine, that guy that's been gone, you're like, where'd he go? Because they didn't talk about it, you know, they didn't say he left, they just stopped talking about him. And all of a sudden I saw him on a magazine cover, and that's what got me into wrestling magazines. I don't know where I saw my first wrestling magazine, but that truly educated me about the whole territory <sighs> system. And for some reason, I can still picture Coco Beware versus Jerry Lawler in a ladder <laughs> match. You know, and I was just looking like... Coco, Coco where? Oh, <laughs> thank you. The, the B got added in the ah, WWF. Right, right. And me just looking at these pictures and being, who are these guys? Yeah. And like, they, this looks like... Like, they're serious. They're real. You know, like, I mean, it seemed just different and exotic, of course. And I guess I, I was looking at more, perhaps... The image that I seem to recall was Coco Ware dangling from a scaffold or something. <laughs> you know, that was the kind yeah, of the dramatic yeah. photo. I may have said ladder match a minute ago, but I right. pictured something more like, I mean, I hated that scaffold match from oh. the Midnight Yeah, there's a couple, couple of years in a row there, 86, 87. Yeah, terrible idea. It's so yeah. uncomfortable to yeah, watch. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's really bad. They Stupid. put people up there who are scared of heights. They put people up there... You know, they put like the, you know, especially when they put the rock and rolls and the midnights up there, because it's like they would have had such a better match. Just put them in the ring. Like, just let them wrestle in the ring. Jeez, come on. Yeah, scaffold matches. They're up way too high. Injury, yeah. just, just terrible. Yeah. Idea. There was no crash pads below them, so they actually right. had to be careful. <laughs> but, right, as far as Hulk Hogan getting to watch him in action, you didn't get to see a lot of Hulk Hogan wrestling AWA. On TV, but I think we did get a glimpse. Didn't they show oh. some Nick Bockwinkle Hulk Hogan oh, highlights? Oh yeah, they would. They you know Hogan Hogan chased Bockwinkle forever, and they teased a lot of dusty finishes. And, you know, people like the the sort of the the good guy wins, and then no, no, he didn't really win. Yeah, uh, that that happened forever. I mean, they ran it around. The, you know, that was Vern's playbook was keep people like never give them the never give them the satisfaction right. you know like you want this guy to win okay he's never gonna win he's gonna yeah. like he's gonna wrestle him a hundred times and it's like he's gonna kick his ass every time but he's never gonna actually like win the belt so you know we would see the hogan promos we would see a little bit of highlights of stuff from those arena shows you know we you would mm. never get like a 20 minute match on tv that's just not gonna happen yeah. you would get like four minutes maybe if you were lucky and all of a sudden there was one of these, you know, Heenan family versus Hogan and Andre or something like that. And it's important to note that, like, Andre wasn't actually, in my memory, Andre was just an AWA. But that's actually not the case. He was all over the place. Vince yeah. McMahon Sr. was booking him everywhere. and But he had a regular time. The AWA ran a series of battle royals every year. So he would always be in around that time and he'd come in and win all the battle royals. And was just such a he was such a great character to have in there. But... I, my thing with, with wrestling magazines is I never actually bought very many. <laughs> I was just a lurker, you know, like I would just, I remember at first what it was because I was so young, my mom would make me stay with her at the at the grocery store. But when she got in line to, to buy the, the groceries and could still see me, then I would head over to the, you know, the magazine. But I knew I had limited time. So all I could do was flip, you know, and read headlines. And just like Jeff said, that first time must have been a pro wrestling illustrated probably. I flipped through and I caught that double page. The standings, you know, the rankings. Top 10 lists. Oh, oh, my God. And then all of a sudden I realized there's all these territories. 
and there's an NWA world champion, and there's a, you know, and oh, there's Hogan. Hogan's the WWF champion at this point because it's, you know, it's it's 84. So it's like I probably didn't start reading wrestling magazines until around 84, and I never really bought any until a couple of years later, and mostly they were presents. It became like a Christmas ritual. My mom would stuff my Christmas stocking with, like, all these magazines, but it was, she, fortunately, she knew that Pro Wrestling Illustrated and The Wrestler, which were always there, were the ones to get. But then she would also just grab random ones, and some of them were really poorly written and, you know, really bad. And I was like, oh, not this one. Like, at certain titles, I can't remember any of them, but they would, like, they would stick out. Did you actually buy it, you know, wrestling magazines that you remember, or were you... Well, I'm ashamed to say I stole some of the wrestling... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Oh, forgive me, universe. Yeah, so... Did acquire wrestling magazines, Mm -hmm. foolishly. I was not even an adult yet, and... uh... Uh, just being, you know, being a teenager. Teenager. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that explained my very large wrestling <laughs> collection. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you know, I, I started to get, like, probably about six to eight a year, but then I would, like, and mostly just from that Christmas period. So most of my magazines were all from the fall, you know, like, mm. you know, the this, the, the, the couple of months leading right. up to Christmas. But I would still go look at them. And I especially remember maybe a couple of years after I started being interested in them that I started being able to go to the grocery store with my mom. And it's not like now where, like, the magazines are sort of an afterthought at the end of the aisle where you go to check out, mm-hmm. where there's maybe six or eight different magazines. Yeah. This is back when it was like you were going to a library or something. Like, the rack was both sides, like, wrapped around almost like an oval or something, right? Like, and there was just, you know, I don't want to overstate this, but hundreds of magazines. And the the amount of different wrestling magazines at one point got pretty, like, in the mid-80s, like, late-80s, like, there wasn't, like, just two or three wrestling magazines. There was, like, ten Hmm. And some of those titles I wouldn't always see very often. Like right. the wrestler and pro wrestling illustrated were always there. And then these other ones would kind of pop up and kind of come and go. And, and those ones would really lean into like showing pictures of blood, you know, bloody pictures. Yeah. Yeah. They were almost more like, um, pictorial essays. Yeah. You know, yeah. Probably only 600 words in the whole magazine and like not anything beyond like the action was fierce. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, so yeah, there were definitely low quality magazines, but I stuck with, as you said, the bill after ones. Yeah. The pro wrestling illustrated was the best one because it had this iconic cover with Hulk Hogan wearing a pro wrestling illustrated t-shirt. Yeah. And it was yeah. a red t-shirt and, he had won Wrestler of the Year, so they right. smartly took pictures. Yeah. This is before Hulk Hogan w- was cut off from pro well, wrestling. McMahon, McMahon cut the ball, like the whole thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I resented the WWF mm-hmm. for no, no longer cooperating. And it was so distinct because you could tell, oh, look at this. Here's a WWF. I'm sorry. Here's Hulk Hogan and the Road Warriors wearing the pro wrestling t-shirts. and With then, their little plaques or whatever. Exactly. Wrestler of the Year, Tag Team of the Year. And then it went pretty shortly to the magazines could only comment they were about WWF stuff the the wrestlers wouldn't speak to them any longer they wouldn't they they no longer would bother making up quotes for them (laughs) yeah and they also wouldn't pose for photos like Hogan wearing the t-shirt so basically Hogan wearing the t-shirt was one era and then McMahon says you will not be interviewed you won't post exactly the WWF launched their own magazine and then cooperation with Pro Wrestling Illustrated dried up did you ever read the WWF magazine no I was boycotting it resentful that I I found it as if it was only as if they were the only wrestlers in the world yes and Pro Wrestling Illustrated was like no like even even if it's not 
actually a sport. There are competing organizations. Yes. You know, and there's more than just one world champion. Yeah. The WWF, like, closed up shop, circled the wagons, pretended yeah. that they're the only thing. Plus, it was way glossier, more photos. So I resented it from day one. Uh, yeah, I really did. I remember getting it in my, one of the, you know, probably not one of the first ones because the, the first couple of magazines were actually called Victory Magazine before they were called WWF Magazine. But I I probably remember getting like a magazine probably in 88 or something like, you know, Christmas 87 or Christmas 88, uh, getting one of theirs. And I just remember like not liking it for the a lot of the reasons you just stated. It was, it didn't, arrogant. It, it, it played with me like I didn't know better, you know? Yeah. Bill After let you in. Yeah. The WF Magazine was like, hey, look at our Christmas thing with the rockers or something, you know, and it was just sort of like, I, I don't, uh, you know, I didn't like this, the tone of it. It, it wasn't, it was, you know, it wasn't anything I wasn't seeing on TV. Mm-hmm. It was sort of just a continuation of that, but in a sort of more maybe childlike way. Mm-hmm. And at that, you know, by 88, I'm already starting to get a little bit older, you know, as a teenager. And I'm just like, wanted, I grew up on a serious product. I grew up on something that was meant for adults. And then the kids come along for the ride. WWF, in most of their eras, has been, projecting towards kids and then hoping the parents are forced to you know be a part of it but they kind of missed the part and they you know in the in the attitude era proved that like no like go for the adults the kids are coming anyways <laughs> you know like and that was but i didn't like that wwf magazine at all and i just yeah i loved i loved the bill after stuff mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's some other good ones out there people have warm memories of the wf magazines and i think it did change over the years and became more sort of insider but i never read any of those i, boycotted it. I never even i wouldn't even open the cover because i would assume it's just a promotional like mcmahon written they people will joke about the language in it it's almost like it's almost like all these writers all they did was like just take dictation from like mcmahon because like he has a very specific verbiage and it's almost like the tone of every single article is like his way of saying things i gave it a pass and i'm glad yeah but let's talk about the other world changing intro well i just want to we'll get right there because this is where i'm going with it is a lot of people assume hogan leaves december 83 well the AWA falls to shambles and it's done. And it's like, no, no, not at all. Like, 84 is an incredible year for them. They have a great year. And because of what you're about to say. <laughs> yes. Well, it all starts with a little Mel Gibson movie. Yeah. I guess it starts with Mad Max. And having heard your fan letter recently, yeah, yeah. Mad Max is the first of several movies. I mean, yeah. really, you could say a trilogy and yeah. then a reboot. But it's the second Mel Gibson movie that gives rise to the greatest tag team of all time yeah arguably but i'll i'm not gonna argue at least you know because <laughs> i was right there and so we are talking about hawk and animal the yeah. road warriors the movie was called mad max the road warrior well the first movie was called mad max the second movie was called the road warrior okay so these guys came along as the road warriors <laughs> correct and they dressed up like the villains from yes. the road warriors that's right uh, sorry from the movie the Road Warrior, and that was a exciting, scary, action-packed movie that apocalyptic was... Apocalyptic future movie. Yeah. yeah, and the bad guys were, you know... Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, really cool. Like, just, they scared the hell out of you, and this tag team modeled their look after at least one guy that I can picture, because yeah. he had the sports gear as armor on kind of like you know sort of football pad yeah armor and he had a mohawk and he was also really intense a little bit a little bit of face paint yeah Yeah. and um so they some studs did not a lot but just like you know maybe a something on his neck and one armband or something like that a little bit like the heavy metal groups of yeah uh, yeah. you know judas priest you know had that and and, and so there was all mixed in yeah and these and they it was like 
two Hulk Hogan's on the same team. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, these two monsters just showed up and just and they came in as heels, so they just came in kicking ass. They just like stormed the ring. Yeah, squashing and, people yeah. in thirty, forty seconds. I, I just remember like yeah, two two pasty white flabby jobbers just getting ready to get their asses kicked, you know, like So that had as much of an impact as the Hulk Hogan intro and yeah. watching the AWA in those days and I knew the movie Road Warrior, yeah. and we were young. It was probably not intended for us 11, 12-year-olds, but we saw it anyway. <laughs> With those older brothers, I saw everything way before I should. So <laughs> There we go. I had an older brother, too, who introduced me to you know heavy metal, X-Men comics, yeah. uh, the Road Warrior. He wasn't a wrestling fan, so yeah. I came about wrestling my own without my brother's help. Yeah. But I certainly had seen you know zombie movies and stuff like that, so... Yeah, the Road Warriors came along, and their first opponents were the Fabulous Ones. and They had a funny vignette. Do you want to kind of touch on that? you remember? Well, that? I do remember. It may not be the one you're thinking okay. of, but I remember the introduction of how they introduced the Fabulous Ones. I mean, i got to be honest. The Fabulous Ones didn't turn out to be the Road Warriors or Hulk Hogan. Yes, yes, of course and, not. You know, one of the things we'll eventually ask is, like, who was your Skinner? Yeah, who, yeah. Who was so awesome in the AWA yeah, that yeah. came to the WWF and just broke your heart, you yeah. know? And that would be Steve Kern. Yeah. You know, because I was a huge fan of the Fabulous Ones and yeah. the Road Warriors. Yeah. I cannot think of any feud where I actually was such a fan of both sides. And without going down the live experiences rabbit hole, because that'll probably take me 15 to 20 minutes to talk about those. Yeah. So. I think we don't want to do that now. But I do remember being at a match. Yeah. Road Warriors versus the Fabulous Ones. And I thought I was a Fabulous Ones fan. And I cheered for them. And then Black Sabbath, oh. Iron Man hit the arena sound system. Yes. And the place, it was the Road Warrior pop. Oh, I was yeah. there in real life, 11 yeah. or maybe you know 12 years old, close enough. And... How could you not scream? And I knew who Black Sabbath was. I liked Black Sabbath because yeah. of the older brother. Of course, yes. So I knew the song. Yeah. And uh, went, and just the, like I was, I'm just re- repeating myself like a blithering idiot. I was cheering the fabulous ones because we, we kind of skipped over it, but yeah. they had come in with this rock and roll ZZ Top. Uh, yes. And they also music video almost music video. So I re- I re- still remember like we don't know who these guys are. are they are they rock and roll stars? Are they wrestlers? Yeah. Are they are they dancers? Or do, do you remember this vignette? The one I remember the first time I saw them was the ZZ Top music and them getting out of like a limo or something with well, some were... women and they had like they had like. Almost Char- like tuxedos yeah. or something, well, yeah. but they were like in tights, wrestling tights, and their legs bare, and the top Sh- hats. And- Sharp-dressed men. Yes, Those yes. are the lyrics, like, yeah. top hat, yeah. white coat, you know, and like, and so the fabulous ones showed up with the top hat and the walking sticks yeah. and the bow ties, because like, they had a little bit of this, you know, it's almost a little squeamish to say it now, but they had the male stripper thing, that, oh, totally. you know, because they did suspenders and bow tie, kind of like beef cake with his bow tie but what are you gonna do these guys are you know athletes with the of, bodies of they, the time exactly so um and steve kern's hair looking good he's like yeah. that's back you know skinner skinner didn't have a good hairline so but uh steve kern and uh, yeah steve AWA kern did. was able to present as you know uh sort of a uh beach bum good looking you know because they had the long flowing blonde hair yeah the uh, fabulous ones they weren't Giants. They were no. more like the high flyers, but they were kind of equal bodies, thick enough, and they had the black full-length tights with lightning bolts on them. And um, I actually once had an opportunity to buy a pair of those tights. <laughs> Weird, but 
this wrestler that I knew who mostly did prelim, prelim, he one night subbed as a fabulous one. He yeah. told me. And so he had the tights and he kept the tights. And one day he asked me if I wanted to buy them. And wow. yeah, I just, you know, it wasn't really in the wrestling memorabilia collection market, uh, right. you know, so, and I mean, I'm, I'm still not really in that. Like yeah, I, right. I got my classic Macho Man shades, but anyway, if I had a million dollars, sure, I would have bought those fabulous one tights. <laughs> So they got introduced very effectively using ZZ Top rock yeah. and roll music and with their look and their bow ties and their top hats and folding in that awesome... So when them getting out of a limo, they probably got out of that classic vehicle that ZZ Top would drive around right, in, you know, like from... That, yeah. yeah, they had these, you know, 1940s looking classic cars that looked so cool. Yeah. And they featured in the videos like Sharp Dress Man and Give Me All Your Lovin'. And yeah. I mean, Eliminator's an incredible album. How many hits are on that album, which is right. released pretty much around this time. So that's fresh music, you know, Sharp Dress Man. Right. And they rode with it. So... I had actually forgotten that the Road Warriors were already using Iron Man and AW. I assumed that was an NWA invention. And I found the clip of what I believe is the match that you were at. Like, the Winnipeg match, I found it, the whole match, and fuck, is the, the audio's great. Like oh. That, the, the, the Iron Man hits, and it just, <laughs> like, sometimes on those clips when you watch a house show from early 80s, you know, it's all mumbled and you can't hear it, or, or the, five, the video starts right as the match is starting, it's cut off, you know, that they had the intro. And I thought, like, oh, we're not going to get to see it because it's almost like a hard camera on the, on the ring and it's not moving. Five, six seconds into the song, all of a sudden the camera angle switches to like the entranceway of the Road Warriors coming out. And I actually get to see them come out with that music and it was just so great. And here are the heels and the crowd pops like yeah. he was Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It was insane. I, and, and I think that I, as a kid, I think I cheered every chop. Yeah. You know, when the, when the Road Warriors flatten the fabulous ones, I was like, yeah! When the, you know, Stan Lane would karate kick Hawk, I'd be like, yeah! <laughs> yeah, I loved it. It was so great. great. That's great. And the thing is, they had the twinsies look. Yes. The fabulous one. So, yeah. Uh, on Hard way, to imagine, but back then they did, yeah. 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 Um, and they had used it effectively, effectively to beat, like, Mr. Saito and Larry Zabisco or something. Yeah. They would, one guy's in the ring all beat up. Yes. And when the referee's not looking, the other guy rolls his injured partner out and takes yeah, his place yeah. playing possum. So Twin magic. <laughs> yeah, they had... Uh, they had the shenanigans of fabulous yeah, ones. Without the masks or yeah. without actually being twins. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it was really cool. And who else but AWA watchers got to see Hulk Hogan, pre-WWF Hulkamania, and then... Well, the birth War- of Hulkamania. You know, let's Basically, be, let's be yeah. honest, right? Yeah. He's, he, he, like, you know, people pretend like Hulkamania was born... Hulkamania wasn't born in the WWF. It just, he just, it just got taken to heights it never could have possibly gone. Transplanted. Yeah, but he was already he already was ninety whatever percent of that character yeah. when he got there. Yeah. He became that character under crazy enough Vert, the guy who doesn't yeah. think the guy who doesn't believe in entertainment is like responsible for like the greatest entertainer, you know, like yeah. in, in, in the history of the res- wrestling business. And that's the thing I always give Vern credit for is he made a lot of mistakes, obviously. Hey, Hulk had been around the circuit. Who else turned him good guy? Vern did. You know, Vern saw that the crowd was popping for him. That's right. The Road Warriors come in as bad guys. Well, he figures it out. You know, he's like, oh, they're getting cheered more than they're getting booed. They're getting cheered more than the good guys. Well, we'll make them good guys. And they don't even have to change their wrestling style. They can just keep beating everybody up. I watched an old match, Hulk Hogan versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Wow. And Duggan was a jobber. Wow. And Hogan had the diamond chest hair and shape. So this is maybe Memphis or one of these places? Would or? have had to have been. Yeah. Hogan had a cape. 
Neat. Hogan yeah. had, I think, uh, the fashion plate. Did he have Freddie Blassie? Blassie yeah. Well, yeah, Freddie Blassie was with and him during a lot of that stuff, yeah. Nothing special, dude. Yeah. the crowd wasn't, you know, they were like, it was just an average wrestling match. Yeah. Heel Hogan against Jobber Duggan yeah. uh, in front of a studio crowd of yep. like 40 people. None of the Eye of the Tiger stuff, none no. of the magic, just average wrestler. Yeah. And sure, like Hogan had looked great. He had more yeah. hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, and it was, it's cool to watch that now, knowing what he would become and the excitement that he would generate. Yeah. And he generated that excitement, you know, in the AWA and then over in New York for the WWF. And then that excitement became a bit of a parody of itself. Oh, yeah. It, and then, it of course, <laughs> Masterstroke NWO. That's a whole different decade. Yeah, different, like, pretty smart. Different life. <laughs> that they did that. Different life. Yeah. We're, we're talking about you and me before we were even teenagers. Probably. Yeah. And, I mean, really, again, I don't have the memories burned into my brain the way I do mid-80s WWF because I watched the shows over and over again. I just have a general impression of it. And I just, an awareness that if it wasn't for the AWA... You know, who knows? Maybe I still would have become a crazy fanatic WWF fan. But maybe I wouldn't have. Who knows? So I, really, if without the AWA to sort of build the building blocks, to build the foundation of, of a fan and to introduce all these people. Because, like I said, when we started getting into 80s, you know, when we get into like, the, there's, a, there's those two years, 84, 85. Hogan left the AWA. I'm watching AWA. I can't see Hogan. I know he's out there. I start seeing these wrestling magazines. And then, bang, you know, I start somehow seeing promotion for WrestleMania. I, can't, I don't remember what it is other than what gets us to, like, you know, Saturday Night's main event. You know, get, pardon me, not Saturday Night's main event, but the Saturday Night Live before WrestleMania, which is this, like, master stroke of, like, luck, fluke, genius, whatever you want to call it. Some host, gets, some host gets sick, and my brother's again, there I am. Why am I watching Saturday Night Live? Host gets sick? Yeah, they, huh? Hogan and T are a last-second replacement. What? Yeah, and without, their, without them hosting... Saturday Night Live, there's a good chance that the interest level for WrestleMania is taken down a notch because they don't get that exposure. Of course, of course. And I mean, like, again, you can't say it enough. That's Rocky Three, Hogan yeah. and Mr. T. Yes. Like, you can say it's WrestleMania, but it's Rocky Three. Yeah. You know, these are the stars of the Sylvester Stallone movie that just hit, yeah. is making all this money. So, I mean, it, it kind of, it almost gets forgotten that if it weren't for Rocky Three, yeah. starring Hulk Hogan and Mr. T, a lot of the glamour and the mystique wouldn't have been there. Yeah, it would have would have rolled out differently. And now, and th I didn't... thank you, Sylvester Stallone, you know, for helping yeah. to promote that. No kidding, I didn't know the story about Saturday Night Live. Yeah, they're a last second replacement, and basically, again, without that, I, I you know, who so they knows? probably had no sketches or yeah, like nothing. Well, that's written. the thing. I mean, this is my memory. I haven't gone back back and watched Saturday Night Live since <laughs> it aired. You know, since it aired, probably I've, I've seen clips from it, but I've never watched the whole thing. I've only seen the clips. only thing I can remember is them being bodyguards in the background of the Billy Crystal. Uh, you are marvelous, whatever that. You know, ah. you can do it better than I can that right. one. And I think I and, and they didn't. I don't think they had a line. They just stand in the background. T and Hogan, the, the bodyguards. Right. You know, I think they had a sketch, another sketch that they didn't have to change. Remember, we are the world. Yes. So Billy Crystal. Dresses up as Prince. Okay. Prince wasn't in the song, We yeah, Are yeah. the World. It had, you know, Cindy Lauper, Michael yeah, yeah, Jackson, right. yeah. everybody who was famous, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, every, yeah. mostly U.S. because yes. there was a U.K. version where yeah. all the British stars and then even Canada did a version right. of these mega group, We Are the World, USA for Africa. Or yeah, the hunger. Like yeah. Yeah. So... Billy Crystal dresses up as Prince, and he's all bitter that he wasn't invited to We Are the World. <laughs> so he's got his own song, and he's there with his bodyguards, Mr. T and Hulk Hogan. 
and he's singing, I am also the world! I am also the people! And Hogan, you know, really mad, and Hogan and T are like, yeah, right, right, right. you know, like, with all, you know, that's my memory of the comedy. Yeah, yeah. And again, thanks to my brothers, not wrestling fans, but they were Saturday Night Live fans. So the only reason I saw the first Saturday Night's main event is because my brothers went to go watch Saturday Night Live, and, you know, the only reason I knew about WrestleMania was because my brothers were watching, wanted to watch, were watching Saturday Night Live. I watched it with them. As the youngest of three boys, the parents kind of give up. So my bedtime wasn't quite as strict as there was, you know? Yeah. Like, I was able to stay up way later than I should have been staying up. Right. So I was able to, like, see Hogan and T on, on Saturday Night Live before WrestleMania won. And then I was able to accidentally, having no idea that wrestling was going to be on, we, we turned the TV channel, like, you know, NBC, waiting for Saturday Night Live to come on. Mm-hmm. And instead, the very first Saturday Night Live event comes on. Yeah. And that's like when I'm like, I'm, I'm back. You know, like, I got Mean Gene. I got Hogan. I got Jesse. <laughs> you know, I got Bobby Heenan. It was just like, they're, they're all here. Like, these guys that were taken from me. And I did my best to get along without them. But boy, was I happy to see them. And it was that masterstroke of McMahon. He knew the Territory fans for the most part. Some of them were, you know, going to just give up on wrestling because they didn't want, they didn't like his wrestling. But for the most part... He gave you a fam- all these familiar faces, even though it was in a different package, a different, you know, container. But it was, you know, for me, it was perfect because I was just like, I, it wasn't like, oh, geez, I don't know anybody here. It was like, oh, I know most of the people here already, you know, like, and again, there was other wrestlers like the Tito's who I would have already been familiar with, even though long term, I sort of eventually forgot their AWA connection. Mm. Absolutely, man. You've summed it up perfectly. They were all there waiting for us. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what a happy reunion that was. And it was so exciting. And we were still young enough to really just dig yeah. it all. Even if it was a bit silly, costume parties, Mother's yeah. Day parties, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, hijinks and weddings. Wed- and weddings and, and yeah, and bobbing for apples and Halloween. Yeah. And... But we were young enough. Like, yeah, I, oh, didn't, yeah. I didn't care. Okay. I always said, like, I was young enough during rock and wrestling that I was young. It didn't bother me. You know, like, it, it, like I'm sure if I was 15 or 17 watching rock and wrestling, it probably wouldn't have worked as well. But it was the perfect time. It was the perfect. And then I peaked right through the mid to late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. you know, and just like everybody else. And then wrestling changed, you know, and, and it was like, and I changed like anybody else would because you become an adult and things change. And never. Like, never. <laughs> you want to live with wrestling forever. Everybody knows I'm gorgeous, pretty, beautiful, whatever you want to call me. But now I have a brain. A brain nobody's ever talked about before. You can refer to me from now on as Bobby, the brilliant one, Heenan. This show wasn't intended to be the be-all, end-all of AWA, and we certainly will find ways in other episodes, especially bonus episodes, to go back and look at some of our favorite angles and matches. Today was just meant to be sort of a, how did we become fans? What was our experience? And really, for this show to kind of gain momentum and have any legs, long-lasting legs, we need to know, how did you become fans? Mm -hmm. What were you watching? What was your experience? How did your territory crumble? And were you even aware that your territory was crumbling? And I think that was the thing that we found. We didn't know. We didn't know the AWA was was going on a downward trajectory. We didn't know that, you know, their television rights were going to get stripped away from them, you know that all of a sudden a different product that we ended up liking just as much or more replaced it. And we didn't put the connection two and two together. At the time, as a little kid, I had no idea that WWF had anything to do with being the reason why I was no longer seeing AWA. 
it's not something that you know you're privy to as a little kid so we're going to come back in part two and we're going to look at just the we're just going to watch some matches and not really try to like lay out what happened the blow by blow of those matches but just more the feel of them yeah i guess i'll talk about my memories of seeing live aw yeah hopefully this road warriors fabulous ones match will be the literally the the show that jeff was at and if not it'll remind him of it because Mm -hmm. it'll be very similar it's it's stated as being from the winnipeg arena so it's a good chance it is and we're gonna try and look at some stuff with little andre little hogan what uh there was a winnipegger who wrestled one night at the winnipeg arena that was exciting (laughs) oh for sure when you can get a national company or something but then have the hometown the the awa days yeah 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 okay so we'll be back with some corrections some updates and some, some infos on those matches. Stay tuned. Just some quick housekeeping as we end this episode. We're hoping that you can follow us on all of our platforms. So for starters, we'd like to point out our Podbean address. So that's legendaryrestlingobsession.podbean.com. That's the easiest place to find us and the quickest place that our shows get updated. Of course, you can use any of the podcast platforms apple seems to not like us we've been on a two-week journey of trying to get through getting approved to be on their site but other than that you should be able to find us in other places if you search for us and for people who really want to help us out we encourage you to go to patreon.com forward slash legendary wrestling obsession so starting with this episode there will be new new content being added in there so the other parts of this show this awa show will be on patreon there will be other content on Patreon, such as the Mr. Wonderful turn on Hulk Hogan or the Ricky Steamboat and Macho Man Randy Savage match before WrestleMania 3 that was on syndicated TV. So it's a place to go and get extra stuff, but more importantly, to help with the uh, cost for hosting the site, getting our shows up, and helping us along. Ooh, yeah. Hanging <laughs> out with the Macho Man. Dig it, yeah. Ooh, ain't the place. Space is the place, and Patreon's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> also, subscribe, follow. Like, hit that button, do comment. that thing, comment, yes. <laughs> all the, that stuff. Uh, everything. One comment from a listener just made my day. All they said was, uh, reminded me of my childhood. And it was great to even just have that feedback. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Just yeah. a small little comment, like, yeah. made my day. Yeah, for sure. So go ahead, punk. Make my day. <laughs> all right. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Oh,